Welcome to the first episode of They Made Us. And in this show, what we want to do is talk to people who we find inspirational and fascinating, people that we've learned things about the world from, and people who are inspired to keep interrogating the world and find out who it was that inspired them to go on the path that they've taken and indeed future paths that they may well take. Most of the people they're going to talk about are, are real. I do know that in a future episode, someone has chosen a fictional character from a 1990s Hollywood movie who have to change the path of their life, which uh, but you'll find out about that later on. Also over this series, I am joined by a bubble physicist, and this genuinely is true, by the way, the first time that I introduced her on stage and said she was a bubble physicist, someone came up to me afterwards and said that I was really misogynistic to call her a bubbly physicist just because she's a woman. I said, no, I didn't say she was a bubbly physicist. She really is a physicist of bubbles. Uh, and that is true as well. You've written the Ladybird Book of Bubbles, haven't you, Helen Chersky? I have, yes. It's got pretty, very, very pretty pictures, which I did not do. But yeah, no, bubbles are a serious topic. We shouldn't talk about bubbles now, though, right? Well, you can talk about bubbles if you want. I mean, well, actually, what I wanted to ask you about is, one, in terms of your inspirations, obviously we have to do this every week, so it means we have to find, you know, kind of eight different inspirations. But who is someone who has changed, do you think, the, the, your potential as a human being in terms of what you might be able to do? So I'm going to pick a slightly tongue-in-cheek one, and it is a fictional one. Um, so those who are familiar with the Terry Pratchett books might remember a character called Nanny Og. And I like Nanny Og because she is very down-to-earth. She doesn't take any nonsense from any. Anyone. Um, and people sort of like her and do things for her, but she, she doesn't let the world stop her, but she does it in a very low-key kind of way. So people do what she wants without ever really noticing. And I have a lot of time for Nanny Og, actually. So you're looking at... you remember, Do you remember this character? Yeah. yeah. So I, I'd like, I like that, that sort of, you know, getting stuff done without... but hiding it very well. I think that's what I've got respect for. So, yeah, Nanny Og. See, I'm thinking I'm going to be more inspired by the Moomins because I've been reading a lot of Tuva Janssen recently and like some of the books that are adult books as well. And Tuva Janssen is just the most brilliant mind and just filled with philosophical fascination. So I'm thinking that partly also because as I become more middle-aged, I will become rounder anyway in my physique. <laughs> so I will be able to adapt more to being a Moomin. So that's one of my... So, so that's between... your aim in life is to become a Moomin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, I mean, it's not my main aim. I've got a list of about seven things, but being a Moomin is one of them. Uh, and then eventually becoming Barbar the Elephant. You know, there's a lot of different things I'm going to be doing. Finland's calling. Yeah. The, um, and uh, we are joined today uh, by, again, two people who've just done remarkable things. Uh, our first guest is someone who is, and I've written this down to make sure I get all of the things that you've won. And this isn't even all the things you've won, but to be a two-times Olympic champion, a three-times world champion, and a four-times European champion. And I know there's other champions in there as well. And also heir to a Cornish ice cream empire and I've tried the ice so both those things which again is a wonderful mixture of stuff because there's both keeping physically fit and again which I won't be doing because that will affect me becoming a moomin but I will be eating a lot of your Cornish ice cream empire goods it is Helen Glover hello Helen so you are I mean how, what did I miss out there because I know there's so much in terms of your rowing achievements no I think that's pretty much it but I'm glad you got the ice cream in as well because that is a big part of me for sure is it literally, <laughs> literally speaking? Literally. I mean, I, so, yeah, I grew up in Cornwall and um, it, this ice cream shop is this tiny, tiny shop. It's been in, in my family for generations. And 
one of my earliest memories is is the ice cream, is seeing my dad going out to, to the little factory at the top of the hill. And the proudest moment was when we went to work with him, he had this old pram and he'd put the ice cream in a massive tub and roll it down the hill in this pram. And the, I was one of five siblings. And then when it was your day, you got to roll the ice cream down the, down the hill in the pram um, and get the first ice cream of the day. So yeah, grew, grew up on um, Cornish ice cream. That is a beautiful mix of images because that's somewhere between Last of the Summer Wine and the Child Catch from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> it's got both those things going on. That, that's brilliant. And then our other guest is someone who uh, some of this audience will know has been very good in training uh, children to know exactly what the strike distance of the Taipan snake is. Uh, and so many people now, many of the children growing up in Burnley and Rickmansworth <laughs> and Aberdeen now know exactly how far away it is to stand away from a Taipan snake and is also a not very keen but reasonably successful ballroom dancer uh, and that is Steve Backshaw. Well thank you very much. I, I certainly wouldn't put the ballroom dancing in there and certainly not keen either. You really, <laughs> I've got to say right if you don't know that uh, Steve did Strictly Come Dancing and I remember speaking to you and you went oh I can't believe I've said yes but then when we did a gig in Hammersmith you were surrounded by dancers all the time and you have never looked more don't like. Don't say that in front of my wife. <laughs> no, it was like you did, you, look, you looked at home. Because I imagined you'd look begrudging about it but there was a level of Vegas flamboyance that you embraced wasn't there? Well I mean it's so obviously. Tell them about our first date. Oh, oh no, Robin, what have you done? Um, Steve, I have to ask you, we might talk about this later on, but one of my favourite things about doing events with, with Steve, I'm sure many of you have seen Deadly 60, is when we did, I think the first event we did together was at the Cheltenham Science Festival. And the first question from a young person was, what's your favourite animal? And you said, well, I don't really have a favourite animal, but if push comes to shove and whatever you said somewhere. And then you went to the next question and the question was, so which animal do you like most? And that's all you had to work out politically so many different ways of saying, I don't have a favourite animal, but for the time being, possum. For the time being, <laughs> being a great white shark. For the time being, taipan snake. It was, it was very, very political. I was highly impressed. I actually used to start off talks exactly like that. I'd say, right, OK, so my favourite animal is an orca. My favourite bird is a stellar sea eagle. My favourite snake is a king cobra. So don't ask any of those things. And then you go to the first person and they go, What's your favourite arthropod? <laughs> it was really terrifying because in the end you punched all those children, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and that's when you had to move into adult television. Um, the uh, and and Helen as well. We did, the last thing we did together was at the Albert Hall, I think, mm. which was uh, incredible. I was petrified. Yeah, I, I, I never before has a room that large um, been talked to about rowing for that long a period of time. So it was, yeah, a little bit um, apprehensive about that one, but it was, yeah, it was amazing. They enjoyed it. They all, all loved it. Yeah, it, was yeah, it was good. This, by the way, is not the start of the show. We are going to start with it. We've, we've had to script a bit because we did a recording last week and we had the feedback, which was we really enjoyed it, but we didn't know what it was because what happens is that we just start talking and think, uh, well, everyone hey, seems to be enjoying the conversations. Robin, we... Remember what happened when you did the Albert Hall and you got all cross? I did get all cross. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute, actually. Now, can we get on with doing this show? Because this kind of distraction is not helping. Thank you. I am not going to... Look at, look at me being good here. I am not going to rise. That. Yes. I'm going to fold yes. my arms and sit here. It is also true that when you listed those two things a few minutes ago and you were talking about snakes and Steve was just, you know, looking like Steve, and then you did say the dancing, and it is one of the only times I've seen him look scared. Yeah. <laughs> it was but, a good face. But it's an interesting... That, that change in fear... You know, the, the, the fear that obviously you, is not 
well, I mean, maybe it is very deep, deep, you know, but when you are doing some of those things, we, we were talking beforehand about, what was it, a, a form of centipede that you said is the, one of the things, what's it, 33 centimetres long? Yeah, and it's... giant, giant scolopendra, yeah. They, there's some of them that will hang from the roof of caves and catch bats on the wing as they fly past and just devour them. It's one of the most grotesque things you, you'll ever see. But also extraordinary because these invertebrates that have a brain the size of a full stop have a degree of pre-planning in their day. They'll, they'll know when the bats are coming out, they'll take themselves to the exact right portion of the cave, hang down by their, their rear sets of legs, just waiting to, to catch these bats as they come out. And they only go out as the bats are emerging to feed. It does sound, I think there's one thing worse than a very large centi centipede, it's an organised very large centipede. <laughs> yeah. right, nobody wants that type of, uh, the spreadsheets, you know, who's doing it, whose turn is it today? <laughs> nobody wants that world. And Helen, I just wanted to ask you, yesterday I was doing a, a, an event called Learning on Screen, which was lots of different documentary makers, a lot of them quite young, who'd made things. And just because of the Cornwall thing, there was, uh, there was a, a woman, who, her name was, I've, I've forgotten her surname, but Ariana, and she won uh, an award for Best Documentary. She was about 20 years old, and she was at Penwith Truro College. And when she won, she went up, and then she just became emotionally overwhelmed. And she started crying and then her tutor came on and kind of explained and said that for her, for where she came from, from coming from that part of Cornwall, a place where a lot of people feel that they're kind of written off and that the idea of some career where you're going to be a documentary filmmaker just isn't. It was a really beautiful thing to watch because you could really see someone standing there at the age of 20 and going, the things that I've imagined would be impossible may not be impossible. So as you, you know, you coming from Cornwall, can you empathise with it that? It just resonates so much with me. I think that when I look back, I look at that type of success and I think there's just a firm belief that happens to other people. And I, I just thought that that happens to other people. And so whenever I go back home now and go into the schools now, I think one, my, my message I really try to drive home is you can do it if you're sat there. There's nothing stopping you. And there may be a few more barriers but nothing is stopping you from doing what you want to do. And there, there is a really different um, kind of atmosphere, I think, when, when I do go to speak in schools um, that are kind of, I guess I've gone into a school in London the other week and there was a real sense of, I can do anything. I can be anything I want to be. And that is amazing and it's so exciting. And it's like this spark. And I, and I leave those school talks and I feel really excited seeing a load of kids who know they can do what they want to do. And then I go into the same age group in a school in Cornwall and I'm having to, I'm wanting to kind of just take each kid and look into their eyes and say, no, you can be anything you want to be. Please believe it. Um, and I think there are so many amazing things about living where I, you know, I want, you know, I'd love to think that one day our, my kids might even grow up somewhere like Cornwall. But I think you believe that everything happens in the bright lights of big cities and you're, you're so far removed from that. So, um, yeah, it's amazing to see somebody being recognised um, and coming from Cornwall, I think, is just... I, yeah, I, I definitely want to, like, cheer extra loud for those people. And do you remember the time for you when you kind of went from that attitude of those things happen to other people to, oh, this could happen to me? Honestly, after I won Olympic gold, I, I, I was, had this like massive... Quite high bar then. But, yeah. it, was, but it, was, it was an imposter syndrome, which I could not shake. And I knew I, had, I knew I couldn't shake it. I was kind of aware of it at the same time. Um, but it was about six months after winning in London um, when it, f it kind of really hit me that I had done it and that it wasn't just other people that could do it. But until that time, I just... I could not attach myself to being an Olympian. I couldn't attach myself to being a professional rower. 
it still felt like some somebody was gonna like reveal to the world that I shouldn't be doing this thing. You know, I still felt like it should be something that somebody else did. Um, and for me, that was a really big drive after London. Going to Rio is because I wanted to not feel that. I wanted to not feel like an imposter. I wanted to own it. And I wanted to never kind of be revealed as somebody who just got lucky. Um, and kind of, yeah, so for me, backing it up in Rio was really important. I like just calling it backing it up. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, um, Steve, let's start off with your... Uh, so who is the first person that you would like to choose in terms of someone who's inspired the adventures you've had? Uh, well, I can pretty much guarantee that you're not going to know him, and neither will anyone else in this room, but he is a teacher who very genuinely changed my life. In fact, uh, more other than my, my wife, obviously, and my mum my and dad, uh, had a bigger impact on me than anyone else ever had. So I, I came to science very late. I, I didn't have anything to do with science when I, was, when I was young, and I flunked my way through school absolutely spectacularly. I went to a comprehensive school, very average one, very big, um, and I was a bright kid who just got lost by the system um, and became incredibly bored, basically just checked out, didn't go to school most of the time. Um, memorably had one report card at the end of the year which just read, who is this boy? <laughs> and um, I flunked my GCSEs and ended up leaving and going to a technical college. And, uh, you know, things were, were looking pretty average for me. I was also looking at failing my A-levels as well. And then coming into the latter half of my second half of my A-levels, um, our English teacher got sick and another guy came in to replace him. And he was about six foot two, played the bongos in a blues band, had a gravelly deep voice that means that he, now today he actually makes a, a living as a voiceover artist, playing the voice of God or the voice of the devil, <laughs> one of the two. Um, and he lit a fire under me that, that completely changed the way that I thought about learning. All of a sudden he turned Shakespeare into a detective story. And everything was infused with with all the things that you know we we consider to be quite natural now with you know thinking about every thing in terms of sexual politics and in terms of, of feminism and in terms of all these quite progressive ideas which were totally alien to us having gone through a very conventional education up to that point and all of a sudden i just rediscovered my love of learning and within a matter of months i'd gone from someone who was predicted to fail all my a levels to getting straight A's and going to a good university. So Robin Brown completely changed my life. And I, I have luckily had the remarkable opportunity of getting to, to thank him properly because I, I did a, um, a, a talk down in Exeter to a big crowded theatre, a thousand people, and someone asked the question, you know, who is the most important person in your life? And I said, well, he's here today. And the entire room, I told a little bit of this story, the entire room of a thousand people just gave him a standing ovation. And it was one of the most magical moments, getting that opportunity to, to properly say thank you. So that's it. I mean, thinking about the restrictions of sometimes the school system, which, of course, there is enormous problems in terms of teachers having time and, you know, frequently meddling governments that are not particularly useful in, in terms of what they're doing, in fact, more damaging. But it's, it's interesting, you know, finding about how you, how you disconnected, because I know that quite often when I've done talks and when there have been younger people in there, one of the things, if I'm talking about writing, is I always say, 
don't feel you have to write an essay plan before you do your essay. Just leave a page blank and do it afterwards. And then they'll go, wow, it's really good. She followed exactly what I... But because some people's minds don't work in that way. Like, I was never able to do that. I always left that page blank because I have to just start writing a story straight away. If I write a plan, I'm bored of the story before I've started doing it. So even things like that, which seems like quite a small thing, but that can be enough because you're told these are the rules. And I wondered how much it was that sense of rule-bound learning, that it, it felt very narrow, the possibilities. Yeah, I mean, Robin was the absolute kind of epitome of, of just that kind of thinking. If there was a rule book, he tore it up and threw it in the bin. There was there was no there were no assignments. There was no sticking to the curriculum. I mean, if, if anyone had seen his classes, I'm sure he would have been fired. Apart from anything else, you know, he sat there the entire time in class rolling up these rolly cigarettes, which he then stick to one lip. And sometimes he just like absentmindedly light it and carry on smoking it and then go, oh, ah, no, that was for later, and, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to do, even back then, certainly not now. Um, but yeah, that, that way of trying to encourage uh, creative thinking about, you know, ancient texts and rediscovering them through a modern lens and just investigating everything just really set a, you know set me on fire and it was even though you know that has not been my life and I have ended up heading towards science it was the rediscovery of my thrill of learning and reading and just immersing myself in knowledge which totally changed my life it's proper hollywood casting though isn't it that that idea he was a bongo player in a blues band. <laughs> and then he became a teacher. But I think that's, I mean, that's an interesting throwing over to Helen or to Helen, either, Helen. Um, that, that, the, uh, I think we, we did a three Helen uh, monkey cage once. It was an absolute, and we've done a three Brian one as well. I mean, you imagine what that's like, because, uh, of course, Brian got all confused as to which Brian he was by the end of it, because he's not great on that kind of level of psychology. But um, I, I just, I, what was just being said there by Steve, that sense that when you said you didn't go down, you know, you eventually went around the science route. But to me, the most important thing is to be infused with curiosity. And I wondered from either of you, really, in terms of that sense that, again, sometimes with education, there's a presumption that there is a point, a very far too early point, where there is a path that you're meant to follow, as opposed to going, the path is... Do you know what? I'm excited to be in the world. I'm excited to question all these things. And it might lead to wanting to write poetry. It might lead to wanting to, you know, smash particles together at high speed. Well, I think, you know, so one of the things, when I, you know, when you look back, when I look back, one of the most important things my parents said to me is, oh, well, we'll find out. Because I would ask a question and they wouldn't say, I don't know, or, you know, what are you asking that for? They'd say, oh, well, let's go, let's go to the library. Let's find a book. Let's plant it and see what happens. And then eventually my mother said to me, oh, I don't know. You go away to university and find, back, find out and come back and tell me. And I don't think she quite realised how far that was going to go. But um, <laughs> that sort of that feeling of like, you don't have to be special in any way. You just have to be curious. And not only do you have to be curious and it's OK to be curious, but then there's a book or there's the internet, or you can, like, it's okay to go and find out. And that, that stage, and I think that's what get lost, gets lost a bit in the education system is that, you know, if you're, it, there's no, there are no stupid questions, but when you have a question, hold on to it. Because I think that's what adults do now is they, they have a question and when they're walking on the street and then they go, oh, well, I've got other things to think about, so I'm going to package it away and not think about it. Whereas a kid would just go, oh, why is that like that? Why is, why is the water coming out of that tap not blue? And adults are like, well, of course it's not blue. And the kid's like, but here's my crayon, right? You taught me to draw blue water. Why is it not blue? 
And it's that like, and I think adults actually forget that there's a question. Like we train ourselves so well to forget it's a question. And then you, haven't, you don't stand a chance of going to find the answer. And I think, yeah, that sort of thing of just not being afraid. Like you said, people stop themselves. And I think finding what you, what you love as well. I think we, we expect children to make decisions so early in their school life about what they're going to do, but they don't even know what they're going to love yet. And I think that they're going to need so many more years of discovering and going through different versions of themselves and going through different versions of what they're interested in. And that there may not be a eureka moment. It may be slow and steady, but in whatever form it comes in, it could come in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And I think that there's just no, no timescale for finding out what you love through it changing through your life and through not being pigeonholed when you're in school to define who you are by what you love in that exact moment. Did you have an inspirational teacher? Um, I had lots of inspirational teachers. Nobody who I would say um, put me on the path of, I guess, where I am now. Um, but definitely people who supported me, who kind of... Well, I remember my textiles teacher. I had double textiles on a Friday afternoon and I couldn't have been any worse. Um, I made this dress and the the cleaner thought it was a bag of rags and threw it out. Um, and my t and every, it was double Friday afternoon, so I often missed that class for cross-country races as a runner at the time. We had to travel quite far to go to the races. And my mum was a bit worried. She said, is it okay that Helen's missing this much? And she said, let's be honest, she's more likely to be an athlete than work in textiles, so she's okay. And, I, and I, so I think people like that who had the understanding of what I might be in life rather than what I had to be in school, I think was really influential on me, yeah. And how, do you, how does that influence you, Nasty? I mean, you do a lot of events with children. You do, you know, zoos, all manner of things. I presume that some of the way that, not necessarily the smoking roll-ups and the bongo playing, but that's not <laughs> to say you shouldn't. But, uh, what, you know, do, do, you, do you feel that sometimes from what Robin taught you? Do you, get, you know, that, that sense of... Because I, I think everyone sat on this stage is always excited about trying to infuse joy into people and that that thing that when you finish a talk that people feel more joyful to be alive and to have questions and i've certainly seen that in you and do you, do you feel that comes from from robin i think i'm in a very privileged position and i don't have the challenges that most teachers do in that you know the kids have been thrown there in their class they may like what they're talking about they may not they may be into the subject they may have absolutely no interest overwhelmingly the, the, get, the kids that I get to speak to are the ones who already have a passion and already are, are interested in particularly wildlife. You know, when kids get infected with, with wildlife or dinosaurs and paleontology, then it, they just absolutely run with it. And it, it's, it's relatively easy, you know, but it, it is incredibly important. I mean, one of the reasons, the reason that I still do kids television now, 20 years on, is because of what Helen just said there, you're, you're speaking to a group of people who haven't made up their mind what their passion's gonna be, and you have the opportunity to, to set them on a path that could change their life. And, and I know what, what wildlife and travel and adventure have given me, and the opportunity to, to you know, make that available to a new generation of young people is, is just something you can't miss. And over and over and over again, you get that feedback. You get that feedback from teachers and from parents saying, you know, my, my youngster now goes out and they're bringing back all these bugs and I've got no idea what they are. And, and you know, just seeing them excited, infused is, um, is, is a gift. And I'm very, very lucky that I still have now, that they still want a person of my advanced years 
working on CBBC and CBBS, you know? But isn't that great? The nice thing about wildlife, I think, even in the modern world, is that it is it's one of those things that's accessible to everybody. You don't need to go and buy a thing or you don't need, you don't need special access. You know, some, you know, if you have the opportunity to go to a zoo, that's great. But fundamentally, you can walk out into the park and if you look, you will find something to look at. And it's that there's something very special about the universality of that. Like it really is, even in a busy modern city, it's accessible to everybody. And that's also important, that sort of... Um, that's another like I can do it thing. I don't need to be in a special class or I don't need to be have have everything. I can just I can go and look and it's your own observation. I think there's something very sort of, you know, empowering about that. I, I can just go and look and I can bring stuff back my mum doesn't can't identify. Isn't that great? Um, let's, what's, who's your uh, first person who's inspired you? So mine, I guess on a more practical level, has shaped my life because it's um, Pierre de Coubertin. So he was the founder of the modern Olympics. And yeah, I think on a totally practical level, if it wasn't for the Olympic Games, there wouldn't be this platform, not just for me in sport, but I feel that the Olympics as a whole is really important for, for sport, but also for what it stands for. And um I think there are so many cornerstones to the way that Pierre de Coubertin set up the modern Olympics that still stand today, even though it's changed quite a lot. And um, I think there are some, yeah, some underpinning, really important social things that go on around the Olympic Games. What's it like then when you are, you know, to be in the Olympic Village, for instance, to be surrounded by people who the mixture of, of anticipation, perhaps terror, you know, that, that, that sense of, of, of representing not just their country, but their hometown and their family and all of those things. What's it like in the, when you first go into, into that? It is unreal. And so you walk into this village and it's got 10,000 people who have all been, you know, on a similar journey as you, in, in, in some way, you know, everybody in that room um, has, or in that village, has made sacrifices, has trained hard, has dedicated their life to something, and who, within the next two weeks, will have put that all to the test. And in two weeks' time, they'll know whether they've succeeded or not. And I, so, yes, terror is the word. You know, you look around, you see the whites of people's eyes. You see people who are normally animated and excitable and you see them quiet and shells of themselves because there's this there is an impending doom around the olympic village of people who are about to go out and do what they feel in the moment is the most important thing in their life um having said that you know all the stories are true it's a great place to party you know it's a really it's a really fun place as well but um i remember walking into i went into the gym there's a massive everything is just super sized so there's a canteen area and it's huge it's almost if you if you kind of to rip out everything in a massive supermarket and then all the way around the outside is kind of food from every area of the world and it's kind of done like um yeah in continents it's split up into each continent and so you can get any food you could possibly imagine finding you can find it in this canteen and yeah you you walk into the canteen you're sat beside you know people of all different shapes and sizes and it makes you realize there is something for everyone in sport because every body type is represented every race it's just this kind of melting pot of just this mix of people who look so different sound so different but are all here with this one purpose and i really like that and how is it shaped when you're talking about social things you know that were put in right at the beginning of the olympics what how do they manifest themselves today well there's things like the olympic oath and essentially, I think that really stands true. When you, when you go into the Olympics, you kind of say the Olympic oath, and that's generally around um, sporting integrity. So 
no doping, no cheating, uh, sticking to the rules. And there are things that have really shifted as well because a really big kind of theory of um, Pierre de Coubertin was that it's not about the winning, it is about taking part. And it is a mirror to life and it's in the striving, not the conquering. Um, and I think that's been quite a significant change because we now are more elite in our processes and more about winning and more about gold. But what I really, really like is that each Olympian is reminded when they walk into an Olympic Games um, that actually you, you are really reminded, it hits you in the face, actually, sport is so much bigger than that. And the whole idea is that it is bigger than politics, bigger than conflicts. Sport is uniting. And I, I really feel like no matter who you are, you could be the biggest A-lister sports star or you could be somebody who's just made it onto their first Olympic team from a small nation and you you are really levelled when you are in, in that Olympic village through those through those cornerstones. So I think, yeah, it, it's very, it is a very levelling thing once you're in that Olympic village. Well, some of people's favourite moments, aren't they? You know, there's the people love the winning and the drama of that, but there's always the athletes from countries who don't have the same facilities, but they've turned up anyway. And, you know, they're sort of last in the pool by two lengths or something, and everybody is cheering them on. And those, and I think there was a moment, was it the last Olympics, when two, two high jumpers decided that they were going to ask be, to be joint winners because they were sort of pushing each other, and then they went, you know what, we both deserve this. Let's both, you know, and it was such a beautiful moment. Yeah, and I, I do think that it really does, it can bring out the best in people. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just been, it's a really important movement, I think, that it's been, um, and I, I wonder what, he would think about the modern Olympics now. It's changed so much. Um, but yeah, like you say, there are beautiful stories weaved into every Olympic Games. You see the highs, but what people really love is the grit, is the, is, is the stories that aren't at the top of the podium. Everybody looks a little further down and finds something amazing, inspiring and really unique about a journey. Well, that was, I mean, when you did Tokyo, Mm. That seems to again, you, the, it, you know, the, the way a lot of people talked about it was like you kind of suddenly went, "Well, I've had those three kids, but I've suddenly realised I've actually got a spare few weeks, so <laughs> I'll start training again." And you know, and you, and you did incredibly. You, it was fourth in the yeah, end, it? yeah. So, so you know that, that drive that you have as well, and that drive, like you said before, that factor going just to show you that winning gold wasn't just a one-off. You know that that. But I better show that I'm, I'm proper dog. And and that sense that you have to keep going back. Um, there is a sense that I had to keep going back. And then there was also, there were so many other factors. I mean, so I had three kids and maybe it does matter that one of them was a little girl and nobody has ever gone back onto the British rowing team as a mother before successfully and made it to an Olympic team. And it started to, I, I'd never questioned it before I became a parent. There was, I never thought about whether I, I would return because people just don't, people just didn't. The conversation was never had it was assumed you'd retire when you had children. And um, we went into lockdown just after I'd had the twins and it just started to feel wrong. I just thought, why, why is there this barrier? Why is there not even a conversation about this? Why is it so impossible for women to get on the team? And actually COVID for me was a huge opportunity because the barriers didn't exist anymore. I didn't have to travel into training. I didn't have to meet at a certain time. I had a rowing machine in my living room and I could get on it when the babies napped. So suddenly what seemed like this closing of walls was actually the opening of so many doors because I thought I could train for 10 months and try to make it onto an Olympic team, which I look back now and I think, what was I, do what was I doing, you know? 
but I think that everyone or well, lots of people found things in COVID that kept them kept them going, kept them driven. And I was really lucky that sort of Steve was massively supportive and just as excited by that as me. So and then and then the further I got down the line, the more it felt like a mission, the more it felt like this is definitely not just me I'm doing this for. So many parents messaging me saying, we're with you on this. So many parents saying, this is what I want my children to be seeing. Um, and so by the time I was on the start line, it was just more of a statement than I thought it would be. It was it was much more about other people than it was me. Well, it's really interesting hearing you describing it. Just, you know, a few uh, days ago, I was reading about, I think, women in early computing and talking about how it was assumed that when they were going to get married, they just stopped. Like their, their, their jobs were reassigned. As soon as they mentioned being engagement, their jobs were just reassigned to other people. Nobody discussed it. And it's really interesting how similar the language that you just used is to that. And yet we sort of, oh, well, that was 80, you know, it was, I don't know, 50 years ago that people just made that mm. assumption. And yet you're basically using the same language to describe a different situation And I think today. that so often it just takes one. And it just takes one. And now in changing rooms, we're talking about, oh, you know, girls are talking about whether they're going to carry on. And, and they say, oh, I might, have some, I might do it after, I might have children first and then keep going. And I think that's amazing because that conversation would never have happened before. So, yeah, something is kind of forgetting other things I've done is one of the proudest moments, actually, was kind of breaking down that barrier just a little bit. Um, and it it's kind of represents, I guess, it's not just rowing specifically, but it's kind of, a, I guess, a statement I'd like to think. And I guess looking at my little girl is just, I want to physically show you what you can do, not just tell you. I was going to ask, what was it like then? So you must have been sitting <laughs> with the kids, watching these races. Uh, I mean, what was it like for them and for you? I, I remember six weeks after Helen had had the twins and um, I was upstairs and I heard the row machine going downstairs and I just thought, oh God, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was an inevitability about it from the very second year. She, when she gets that, that hunger in her eyes, there is absolutely nothing stopping her. But I, I found it genuinely shocking when she went back onto the team um, you know, one of the most decorated rowers on the team wrote a, a, an article for The Telegraph that said Helen returning to the team is like Lionel Messi coming on your football team. And, you know, she was the most decorated, unbeaten rower of her generation. And she came back and everyone was like, oh, what are we going to do with her? Oh, we've got no structure to deal with a mum who's got kids. And, and the, the kind of lack of enthusiasm for her coming back was unbelievable. And it's only now three years, four years after that, that actually they're starting to put support in place for Helen, for anybody else who, who might want to return as a successful athlete with children is extraordinary. That, you know, we, in, in this year and still, there's, there's, so, there's so little science for, about female athletes. I think that so was little probably the most about... surprising thing for me was when I was trying to research, even when I wasn't thinking about getting back into rowing, I was researching you know about getting into exercise after having the kids and there was there was nothing that the really the science was quite conflicting and there was no hard evidence and what I love what really excites me is all the anecdotal evidence of mums that come back stronger that come back better and I'm thinking and there's no um there's lots of theories around about it and there's lots of kind of whether it's more in your psychology because I think your psychology changes um, rather than your physio, and then some theories about theories about changes changes in physiology. Um, but I'm 
well, I'm clinging on to hope that that's the case because I'm, I'm, I'm carrying on training now for Paris. So I'm just, I'm telling myself that mum's come back fitter and stronger. So yeah, I think it's really interesting. Steve, I was just going to ask you, I don't understand anything about football, so I didn't know what that Lionel Messi thing meant. <laughs> so, um, so what did that mean then? It means she's very good. Oh, okay, right. And good. Lionel's done well, has he's, he? He's done all right for himself, yeah. Oh, oh okay. you tell you what, you two have your little male pub conversation. <laughs> it's not a male. We'll this get is the whole point. Over you here. probably knew who Lionel Messi was. I don't. I don't think a man admitting that he's got no idea who Lionel Messi is is as alpha as you might imagine. Um, <laughs> the, let's move on to your next inspiration. So, um, following my, you know, disastrous schooling, doing all right at my A levels. I then decided to take a year out before going to university and uh, decided to travel around Asia on my own. And this was in 1990 and 1991. And I picked up a book in a, uh, a bookshop in Penang in Malaysia, which I then proceeded to read on a, a six day bus journey in Sumatra, six days overnight on a, in a bus where the, the seats came up to the middle of my back no air conditioning or anything. It was horrific. And I had a horrible case of the squits at the same time as well, which was not pleasant. But I devoured this, is, this on, book. Is, is this the <laughs> trip that I read about in one of your books where basically every single place you arrived at to go and do a thing, all the locals just went, I wouldn't do that, you'll die. I mean, that's, that's most of my early yeah. trips. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it's a book that was written in the mid-1800s and still today reads like a... a Joseph Conrad or Ryder Haggard or Wilbur Smith even novel. It's filled with adventure and daring do and, and just an absolute obsession with wildlife that I, I absolutely adore. And the, the person who wrote it, Al, Alfred Russell Wallace, is the closest thing I have ever had to a real hero. I've never had footballers or pop stars as posters on my walls, but I would give anything for a half hour conversation with Alfred Russell Wallace. I would, however, put in the stipulation that I would not talk about evolution. I would not talk about Charles Darwin because I think that that is probably the least interesting thing about, about Wallace. He was an extraordinary polymath who had an array of obsessions and things that he was extraordinary at. And I think one of the most fascinating human beings ever. Because he wrote, I mean, there was, there was one of the things that I was fascinated by was there was a, a, a very wealthy flat earther, wasn't there, who challenged anyone to prove that the earth wasn't flat. That's correct, yeah. And Russell Wallace did. Was it the Bedford level experiment? He, he, that's right. He was, he was bet about £200 that he couldn't show the curvature of the earth. And he did it. And the guy refused to pay. And <laughs> at, at that time, he was going through quite a lot of financial troubles. And he, he needed the cash. That's one of the other reasons I think I, I kind of like Wallace so much is that he he left school at 14 you know seventh of eight siblings he he taught himself completely self-taught and he went through numerous periods in his life when he was you know really really struggling to make ends meet but he managed to come through as as a uh, a, a, a cartographer an illustrator uh, a, a an anthropologist he came up with the whole idea of biogeography. Um, he was just a remarkable person with so many interests and obsessions. 
But isn't it interesting that you go, you have to basically go back to the 18th or 19th centuries to, to find the polymath, because in a way, science has become so specialised. It's sort of, even if you have that kind of brilliant mind, there's so much brilliance just in one tiny branch of an insect's legs or something that people kind of get, you know, they do that and they're brilliant at it. But it's sort of, it feels, so it feels very impressive to us that, you know, if you go back and there were these names like Alexander von Humboldt, that sort of, you know, and they just, they saw everything. And because there was less things, there were fewer things known, they could sort of know everything and their brain could make all these connections. And it was almost like, I feel almost envious of that time when like there was almost a blank map and they could fill it, they could see how the pieces would fit together and they weren't pushed into specializing. You know, we complain about that now, but it's that sort of expansiveness is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, he wasn't always that brilliant. I mean, there's, there's an awful lot of stories of things that he got horribly wrong, something that I massively identify with because <laughs> all of my early expeditions were catastrophic and it's very, very lucky that I am here at all. And also the same with Wallace. You know, the, the first time he picked up a gun to try and shoot a bird, he nearly took his own hand off. Um, his, his assistant, Alan, was very nearly eaten by cannibals in New Guinea. He was hit by a tsunami. He had his, his main batch of um, orangutan skins pickled in arak, which is a, a kind of rice wine, all the locals came in and drank it. He dropped his first specimen of a brand new species of bird of paradise on the floor and it was devoured by the local dogs. And when he left the Amazon after his first big collecting trip, his ship caught fire and took everything that he collected that he was hoping to, to fund his expeditions with, apart from one parrot and a couple of shirts. So, I mean, I love the it's fact that- It's one of those that... parrots that really talks. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you what you left behind. <laughs> oh, I, I just, I love going back through these, these stories, which are, you know, as, as modern and kind of um, insightful as they could possibly be from someone writing in those times. And if you, you flick back and you look at, at people from those eras through a modern lens, inevitably they're found wanting in a lot of ways. But I, I love that he was so involved with the local people. He wanted to find out about them, to learn their languages and their cultures. And, and he, he saw them in a way that I think we very much would do today. He envied their societies and saw uh, many of the ills that we're starting to feel today, even through to the early environmental movement, um, way, way before they were a thing. Didn't he write, was it The Flying Machines of War or something like that? One of his last yeah, yeah. publications was actually looking towards what ultimately was seen in the First World War. Yeah, and talking about how he couldn't imagine of anything more inhuman than a, a machine that could just fly over a city at night and drop thousands of bombs and so it came to pass. Also, we shouldn't, like, you know, Darwin as well, in terms of people who sometimes, like, he mislabeled loads of his samples. I remember going back to the, one of the dry storerooms in a Cambridge Natural History Museum. I went, what are all these broken eggs? And they went, they're all the ones that Darwin sent home. He packed them really badly. You know, there's loads <laughs> of that bit of, you know, Error as well. That, that's part of discovery, isn't it? His handwriting. I think his handwriting was so bad that in the Natural History Museum in London, they've had to go back and like rewrite them with someone who's who's got like who can see into his mind and what this terrible, <laughs> terrible scrawl actually meant. And it is terrible. I've seen it. But uh, yeah, so he was not. He was no good at calligraphy. That was not his thing. Yeah. So there's lots of, and I, I think you, and I think it is such an interesting story, as you said, with Russell Wallace. I touched on some of the things we've talked about already, which is the difference between being someone who has wealth. And as we know, most scientists were kind of, you know, gentleman scientists who could do whatever they wanted. And Alfred Russell Wallace was someone who also had to somehow, as you said, with the Bedford Level experiment, 
he, one of the reasons he did that was I, I need the money. Mm. I, don't, I don't have, I, you know, it doesn't, doesn't have a house that's kind of, you know, a luxury house with a gravel path that you can go and think round. So many of his, his collected letters and many of his works are of, of him basically going around to places like this and asking for money and going to the RGS and going, please, please get me a, get me a boat you know, to get out to, to the Malay Archipelago where he ended up writing this work of absolute genius, collecting 125,000 specimens, over 5,000 of which were new to science, 200 of which still bear his name. And many of those are things like the Wallace's flying frog, like, like birds of paradise, you know, not the kind of things that we're discovering today and getting super excited about. I'm lucky enough to have been on expeditions where we have discovered new species and there is nothing more exciting. And you come back from an expedition having found three or four and everybody is on cloud nine. He, he was discovering thousands. And, you know, I, I, can't, I can't imagine having been around in that time I've followed the trail of so many of his expeditions and, you know, even in the early 90s when I was travelling there, they were hard work and challenging and, you know, we had ways of contacting the outside world and knowing that, you know, if things had gone bad, then I could probably have called home and got, you know, got out of there. But, you know, he was he was months away from, from anywhere. In fact, there was actually a moment where um, I think it was one of his sisters um, decided that he wasn't getting good enough food, so sent out a consignment of bacon to the Malay archipelago. Obviously not realising that it would go on a, on a packet ship and take two months to get there. So by the time it got there, it was about black and putrid and fly-infested. And he says uh, he still ate it because he'd been living on rice and beans for, for the last year or two. But yeah, he's, he's an incredible man. That's brilliant. So let's... Helen, who's your second... So mine, similarly to Steve's first one, um, is somebody who you wouldn't know necessarily. Um, he's my rowing coach who took me to London and Rio. He's called Robin Williams. And yeah, he, for obvious reasons, has made a, a huge impact on my life. You know, he was he was the coach that took Heather and myself to, to those Olympics and other races. So, And when did you first meet him? So we met in 2010. We had just joined the rowing team myself and Heather, my rowing partner, and we scraped onto the team the very last kind of boat that was accepted onto the team. So we were the spares, the people who would maybe jump in if anybody was ill or injured. And um, Robin had left the team at that point as a coach and they called him up and they said, look, we've got an extra boat that we didn't expect to have. It's this girl's called Helen and Heather. Um, I'd only been rowing for two years at that point. And so they just said, look, if you can come out to a training camp and coach them for three weeks, we're thinking we might send them to the World Championships um, just, to, just to give them some experience. Um, and I think we were, we were ranked around 20th in the world at that time because we'd done a couple of races. And he came out and he coached us and we clicked. He, he's one of these people who doesn't think of rowing in, in I guess, usual terms. He's, he's kind of really creative with his language and the way he imagines things. And he, you know, he talks about dropping your oar into a bucket of concrete and levering it past like a pole vaulter going over an aircraft carrier. And you've kind of got all these visuals going on in your head, but it really worked for me and Heather. And um, by the end of that summer after training camp, we were flown out to the World Championships and we got a silver medal and we, you know, we should have come 20th. And, um, you know, I literally picked up an oar two years before that. And then from that moment on, he was our coach. Two years later, we won the Olympic Games. And Honestly, so much of our 
so much of our success is attributed to him. Um, but I think most, most kind of poignantly for me is that it meant so much to him as well. You know, this moment when you're standing on the podium and you think there should be somebody up here with me and it should be Robin. And a couple of years after, after London, he found out he had, he's, he's absolutely fine now, but he found out he had quite a serious cancer. And uh, someone sent me an article he had written for a cancer magazine, a charity one. And he said, it, the first sentence was, everyone should have a bucket list. Um, I've achieved the top thing on my bucket list. And it was to coach about the Olympic Games. And it, in that moment, I knew he cared, but in that moment, it made me realize how much my journey was somebody else's journey. And I just think that was, yeah, it was amazing to feel like that kind of my achievement and Heather's achievement was, we believed it was his achievement too. And the fact that he felt it so rawly was amazing. But yeah, he's just been there uh, through every step with us. So he's amazing. It's interesting. Oh, sorry. No, 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 see no, how yeah. coaches are sort of viewed in our society. Because so in the Pacific, for example, they see great leaders and great teachers as being the same thing. Like if you're a great leader, you have to be a great teacher. And we don't, we kind of put teachers in a, oh, well, the teachers are over there, you know, not doing things as exciting as Steve talks about the teachers. And we, we completely undervalue our teachers. But there is that thing when you have a really good coach that they are like, that they, they have to have a person. It's not just about technical knowledge, is it? They have to be a leader as well. Yeah, when everybody, anybody asks me what was so good about Robin, that I just always jump to the same conclusion. It's just that he's passionate. He loves what he does. He wants to know more about rowing. He wants to, you know, we're, we are in the business of looking for the tiniest of margins, the, the less than 1%. And he loves to find that out. He's so intrigued by what makes the boat go faster. He's so intrigued by how we can push physiology on. He's so intrigued by the psychological aspect of a rower. And that intrigue and that excitement means you're, as an athlete, waking up to an email that he has sent at three in the morning because he's woken up with a new idea. And how lucky am I to be working towards my goal and my dream with somebody who's as interested as that? What's the like? Because it you know, with with some people, some of the memoirs that I've read of uh, of, of sports people, you find out that sometimes the the coach was a bully, and sometimes yeah, the reason they achieved thing was. I mean, certainly we we look at the history of gymnastics, and there's some really grotesque stories. So I wondered what it, that that bit of being inspirational and tough, rather than you know the the. What is that that line? Can you can you begin to understand what that line is? It's a fine line, and I've really seen coaches that sit either side of it. I think with Robin, the thing we had where we were really aligned on our goals, and I think that fundamentally um, kind of drew us together as a team. We knew that even if we didn't agree with what the other person was doing, you could always ask yourself, are they trying to make the boat go faster? And it was always yes. Even if I don't agree with what you're doing, I know you're doing it with good intentions. And that usually diffused any argument, any feeling of kind of it was either wrong of them to do or, or, or anything like that. So I think that if Robin was harsh, I knew he was being rightfully harsh. I was probably worrying really badly that day. You know, like, I, I, I believed that any harshness was, was um, in our best interest. And, and, but, but, but there wasn't, we were generally so aligned that then never felt, it was more kind of carrot than stick, I think. And had he been a rower himself? Because I'm always interested in how, how coaches get where they are. Because some coaches have been elite athletes and then they move into coaching and some just want other people to do well so, so much. How, how was it for Robin? Yeah, so he was a rower. He was a really um, well-accomplished rower. He, as a lightweight, he rowed for Great Britain and won medals for Great Britain. Um, but I get the feeling that he could almost coach any sport because he does have that, but he, he would often liken 
um, rowing to lots of different sports. And we even, in, in one of our World Cup races in Lucerne, it was around Wimbledon time. And the night before, we always do our pre-race chat the night before, and he had been saying, he'd been talking about Federer, and he had been describing the way he serves, and he had been describing the match he had watched that day. And at the halfway point, I hadn't even thought about this or planned this, but I just said to her, this is our Federer moment. And she knew exactly what I meant. And afterwards, we said, oh, we used the Federer thing. You know, he, <laughs> he, can, really, he can really see in other sports what's going on. So yes, he was a rower, but I, I feel like he could take that to, to whatever he wants to, I think. Okay, so then on the subject of coaching, have you ever put Steve on a rowing machine and how coachable is he? We raced each other once on a rowing machine. Um, you beat me though, didn't you? I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> it was only a sprint. If we'd carried on, I think I would have won. Um, but annoyingly, he also... So we did this race and he beat me. So I thought, right, you're going to go out in my single now. And singles are so skinny. They're really wobbly and most people fall in. And so I thought, right, this is it. This is going to be my comeback. And he went in the single, didn't fall in once. I was so oh, annoyed. <laughs> I was so annoyed. <laughs> Not even to make her feel better. You could have just tipped in at the end, you know, and made your point. And how do you find rowing? I mean, you, 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 you're living with someone who's clearly brilliant at it. How, when you, do you ever get on the rowing machine? Well, not really. I mean, it, I, I think it is the most... I've done a lot of different sports. I don't think there's any pain that's quite like it, having done the, the kind of the 2k tests and the, the step tests and things that Helen does um, and I, I find it utterly insane that she might go on and do a 22 kilometer row on the ergo on the rowing machine and then go out and do it again for the second session and then go out and do a weights session on the the third session of the day and I, I'd always considered myself to be a competitive person until I met Helen. And then I realised that we are a different species. There is, there is just nothing even close. I, I will always remember that on our honeymoon, um, Helen wasn't feeling very well one day. And I thought, this is my chance. I'm going to get one up on And I said... Um, Good first reaction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your new wife not feeling very well. Hell, should we have a game of table tennis? And she was kind of like, oh, no, I just, I, I can barely get out of bed. I, I really can't. Like, Come on, game of table tennis. She beat me 20 times on the bounce and just wouldn't stop. Just absolutely Well, me. that serves you right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we should... Uh, oh, by the way, the one thing I did want to know is, um, what is your favourite animal? <laughs> Have you ever had children come up to you and actually tell you off and say, I saw you last week and you said this was your favourite yes, animal? Yes, so I, I, yes. I bet there are people who keep notes all the time. Yeah, I, 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 a wolverine anymore. Oh, God, I'm just making up a little wolverine. I, ha I have been caught out. I also did a, uh, a posh public school once and I, I did the thing that I, you know, said that I started off the talk by saying, now, whatever you do, my favourite animal's the wolf, my favourite, blah, 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 blah. And then it, it came to the Q&A at the end and the headmaster, who'd been sat there in the, in the corner the entire time, walked over and said, um, and now I, I wonder if in all your travels, you've had an animal that you think is your favourite. And all the kids just went, he hasn't listened to a yeah. single word he's just been said. So, so but what is it, though? No, 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 don't worry. The, um, and you two as well, we should just say, you, you've, both, you've just written a book together, haven't you? We have, yes. Yeah, it's called, called Wildlings, and it's all about uh, getting your youngsters outside and into nature. It's, it's kind of a, a how-to guide for parents. I think we, we kind of um, divided all the kind of areas, and they, it actually fell really naturally into what Steve's area's expertise were and what mine were. 
a lot of mine were kind of about growing up in, in Cornwall and the beach and the rock pooling and things like that. And Steve was kind of more on the specifics on insects and building dens and things like that. So, yeah, it kind of fell quite neatly into two camps. And definitely um, I viewed it through the eyes of parents, I think, and thinking, right, it is a nightmare getting these three out the door. What do I do? How do I stream like it? How do, how do I make life easy? If you're tired, you do not know what to do with your children, open the book and there's just something there and it's really simple. And I think for Steve, Steve was seeing it through the eyes of kids and what's amazing for them and what do they love. And so I think that hopefully the book kind of reflects those, those two things. Thank you so much uh, to everyone who's come to uh, this day in the conversation room at the uh, Royal Institution. And uh, also just a reminder, we're going to try and make sure that everything uh, that we make in these series are freely available to everyone. But if you are doing okay and you are able to support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles, that really helps make sure that we can keep this free for everyone who is not able necessarily to uh, uh, support shows like this. So if you can do it, that would be absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much to our guests and uh, we will see you again next week. They've Made Us was produced by Trent Burton and presented by me, Dr. Helen Chersky and Robin Ince. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network and is presented in association with the Royal Institution. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, visit youtube.com slash cosmic shambles. To enjoy more great science podcasts, documentaries and live events, visit cosmicshambles.com.